You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. How do you go from full-time techie to professional real estate investor? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. I know we've got a lot of Silicon Valley listeners here, and I know how hard you work, sometimes over 80 hours a week. And unfortunately, even with all those hours and very high pay, Many people are still struggling to get by day-to-day financially, since the cost of living in the San Francisco Bay Area is so high. And that's true for LA and San Diego as well, and pretty much most of the country nowadays. So how do you get out of the rat race? Our guest today did it, and he's here to tell us how. JC, welcome to The Real Well Show. Thanks a lot for having me, Kathy. I appreciate it. I'd love to do success stories and find out how people got started in real estate. So how did you get started? Well, uh, you know, my story goes back to uh, technology. I am an engineer by degree, and I have about 20 years background in the semiconductor industry in the Silicon Valley, which is where I live today. And somewhere along the line, you know, I always had a passion for real estate. I started buying single family homes in our backyard and sold a few, made some money and pretty much figured out that In order to scale my real estate business and still keep my full-time job, I had to be able to do more with less time. So apartments were kind of a natural fit to me. So I did a bunch of research, uh, went to a bunch of real estate investment clubs, read a lot of books, and uh, tried to buy a deal in San Jose, but I couldn't make the numbers work because uh, the dirt was too expensive. So I uh, went out of the state. I did a lot of research and I settled on Texas and I started buying properties even before the recession, uh, I started buying properties, apartments out in Texas. So that's kind of how I got my start. And when did you start buying in Texas? I started buying in Texas in 2006-07. Ooh, all right. Good timing. And how have you noticed that market change in the last decade? Well, I've sort of been through a full cycle, as they say. So bought sort of near the peak, uh, rode the recession all the way down and sort of wrote it all the way back up. So, you know, I think I've learned a thing or two over the full cycle in terms of what it takes to have staying power, not only in apartments, but in real estate in general. What did you learn about apartments during that time? Because some parts of Texas did just fine during the recession and other areas, not so much. I know there was a little area south of Dallas where almost every house was a foreclosure, but I don't really know the impact on multifamily. So what was your experience? Well, you know, with multifamily, I think it was a little bit of a similar story. When the recession happened overnight, the, the lending dried up to zero. And so if you had a property and you had it in a good location and you bought right on real numbers and you managed your property correctly, I think you were okay if you were long-term focused and you had a good runway on your loan. I think where I personally saw a lot of people go under was where they had some sort of a finance end of the road type of deal where they had to get out of a loan with a balloon payment. And, uh, you know, they couldn't get anything on the back end financed. And also, when you would go and do, you know, a refi, the value of the property had dipped so extensively that you needed to recapitalize in order to actually put debt on it. And if you remember, in 2008 to 2009, 10, nobody was willing to really put money into deals. It was just a really rotten time. And everybody was scared out of their mind, you know, to be doing real estate deals. So me, I was always a long-term guy. The first few deals I bought, figured I'd keep them for, you know, maybe for good. And so I just kind of battened down the hatches and got ready for the winter. And, you know, amazingly enough, what I figured out during the downturn was that my property stayed pretty full. We managed to raise rents even. 
But we always focused on buying great locations and really good curb appeal type properties, and we took care of them. So I think what happened in the downturn is that when the job market kind of went in the tank, the residents or the prospects had the upper hand. They, you know, it's a supply demand thing. There was lots of supply, and they could pick and choose. And so if you're a renter, of course, for the same dollar, you're going to want to go stay at the best value that you can get for your dollar. So if you were running a bad property, or if you were in a really bad, you know, crime-ridden location. You really got hurt bad, but if you were a smart guy and bought in a right location, I think you relatively made it okay. Now, the equity on these deals, you know, you were underwater a little bit. For example, first 100 units I bought, I think we bought them for an average of about 26,000 a unit. And if we absolutely had to sell them, which we didn't during the recession, they were probably worth around maybe $20,000 if we had to sell them. So technically, we were negative equity, but we were making over 10% on our money. So it was never really an issue. We just had to wait out the storm. And on the back end, these days, those same assets are probably selling for 65 to 75,000 units. So they've basically tripled over the last 12 years. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So you were able to keep them rented. As you know, we are in a mastermind together for multifamily. And there were some people in the room that haven't been through a downturn and are buying in those lower income, high crime areas, because that's really all that's left, so to speak, in Dallas, where the numbers might work today, but they might not work in a downturn. Do you have concerns about some of these new multifamily investors going into areas, like you said, that might not hold up, that might not be so attractive in a downturn? Well, you know, I think one of my good buddies, Michael Becker, said it best when he said that somewhere along the way, D-class properties have kind of disappeared and fallen off the map. Everybody talks about A class, B class, and C class these days, but no one actually talks about D's. And D's are always the properties that are in the really tough neighborhoods. And those are the ones that get hurt the worst when the economy turns. And so me personally, you know, my advice for people that are getting into the business is focus on location first and foremost. And it doesn't matter how good the numbers look because you have to look at risk-adjusted returns. And if you're taking a lot of risk and you're looking for the biggest payoff, then you may settle for a really bad location property because it looks great on paper. But if the economy turns, the risk that you're taking to be in those locations is what's really going to hurt you bad. So people have to remember that it's not just about outright returns. It's about the risk that you're taking to make those returns. Yeah. And again, like you said, if people start losing their jobs, and there's more vacancies. Most people are going to move to the B class because they can. They can afford it at that time because there might be more, more availability. What are your concerns about potentially overbuilding happening in Dallas? I know in Seattle, there's probably more apartments than needed at this time, but do you have any concerns about Dallas? Well, you know, everybody always says, especially in DFW, and it is true to some extent that if you look at the raw numbers of job creation and net absorption of those new units, because it's not how many units are coming online, it's how many are being absorbed net. And I think that it's clear in DFW that there is slightly more supply currently than is being absorbed in the market. Now, as long as the job economy holds up, we are starting to see a decline in the amount of supply coming to the market. And that should make for more of an equilibrium if we look out beyond the next two to three years. But for right now, yes, there is slightly more supply. So we have a negative net absorption. Now, what's really key here is I like to think of, and I always explain this best with the idea of throwing a pebble into a completely still lake. You know, when you throw a pebble into a lake, the ripples are going to be the biggest right where the rock goes into the water. And so if you think of sort of A-class properties as right next to that pebble, 
and Bs are a little bit further away and Cs are a little bit further away, then you can see that the ripples won't impact the Bs as much as the As. As will get rocked pretty hard by oversupply because these days, especially, people aren't building workforce housing when they're building these new projects because the cost to construct is so high that the only way that they can justify the numbers is by pushing the envelope of the very tip top of the market for what they're going to command on the rents, so on and so forth. So when that pebble hits the water, the Bs will be less impacted and the Cs will be even less impacted. Now, Cs are going to be hit by some other sorts of forces that could make for a bad situation. But in my mind, B-class properties are probably the ideal investment right now because they give a maximum amount of value add, which is really critical. Uh, We won't buy deals unless there's a value play on them. But also, you're sort of insulated a little bit more from the supply because there's enough of a gap between what the rents are going for with A-class versus what they're charging for B. So in other words, in a downturn, people that can afford to live in A-class buildings are going to sort of downsize to Bs, right? And so that's going to give you a little bit more of a protection from the downside, right? So we're always thinking not only what can we make with our value play, but also how are we going to protect ourselves on the downside? That's actually more important to us than what we're going to make sometimes. And now there's a lot of people in the Silicon Valley, people that you used to work with when you were working in a in an office, an uh, engineer. Right, another mindset. Yeah, your former life. And they just, as you know, don't have a lot of free time. They're not, they don't have the resources to be able to go out and buy a multifamily property. So they might have to invest with somebody else and somebody else's syndication. What would you say are the most important things to look for if they are investing in someone else's deal? Well, the first thing I always tell people that they should look for is they should look to get to know the GPs or the sponsors for the deals, right? It's the old adage and it's completely true. You don't invest in businesses, you invest in people. And you you don't just get to know people by looking at a pro forma or a business plan. You have to go out and actually meet and greet the people, talk to them. You have to talk to their investors. You have to do background checks on them, see if they have a criminal history. Google is an amazing tool these days. You can find mostly anything out about anyone. So it all starts with learning about the people behind the project. And what's really important also is these days, there's so many different models in terms of how people syndicate. Some people actually partner with people that just raise money. So you have people that raise money, and then you have the GPs that actually operate the properties, but then you also have the management company. So if you think about it, if you're the investor, you actually have to know three pieces of the pie. Now, there's some other people that actually have their own operations in-house, so maybe that limits it. And then there's other people that both raise the capital and renovate the deals, and they manage their own properties. And so you can see that the, that the gamut is there in terms of who's responsible for what. Now, obviously, it would make common sense to say that the more people in the kitchen that have responsibility, it's the lesser one-neck-to-choke type of deal, right? So I always like to know who's the guy I'm going to choke. <laughs> and so for me, the most important thing that I would recommend people to do is to learn about the people that are doing the deals. And sometimes that can take a month, maybe even two months. I mean, you know, getting to know people before you actually make an investment like this is super critical to the success of your investment. There's good people out there who maybe just don't have good experience or enough experience. I've seen some people that are really promoting themselves as gurus in multifamily that have been only doing it for three years or so, and they're raising millions of dollars. I mean, again, any tips? on that if they just really don't have the experience, even though they're good people? Well, it's a very good point, Kathy. And I think that one of the things that we always talk about is, first of all, have they been through a downturn? Because 
listen, I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble, but any of these folks that have been doing deals, not only in multifamily, but in commercial and in single family for the last you know, five years, I mean, monkeys could have made money in this market. I mean, let's face it, right? Maybe not as much money as a smart person, but everybody's been successful because a, a rising tide has floated all boats. But I always like to know if people, number one, have been through a downturn. And if they have, how did they do during the downturn? And if they're smart, they should be able to show you their track record during the downturn. Did they lose their properties? What was their financing strategy when they bought at the peak of the market? How did they come out on the back end? And if they had speed bumps, which every one of us did that went through the downturn, how did they manage through those speed bumps? If you can get people to open up about how they did in the bad times, I think that's a better reflection of how they might do for you if you choose to work with them. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with being new at something. You got to start somewhere. My suggestion is that if you are using OPM, other people's money and or, you know, syndicating, or if you're investing in someone else's deal, just make sure there's somebody on the management team that does have that experience. Again, it's okay to be young and excited and, you know, energetic, but make sure you got the old dude there too. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit of, uh, you know, metaphorical gray hairs is always good, right? Always good. But I said old dude, but you know, there's also women in multifamily. So let's talk about that and your vision. Well, thank you for bringing that up, Kathy. I mean, you're a woman that's pretty much a superstar in real estate. So uh, we need more Kathy Fetkeys out there. Oh, thank you. Going back to women, uh, women in multifamily, the last meeting that we had, it was really interesting, you know, getting to know a lot of the people that come to our meetings is a lot of fun. What I was so impressed with was the last meeting that we had, I went up and I met a lady who had been investing in multifamily for years, and she brought her daughter who had just graduated from college. And she said, you know, JC, I want to teach my daughter about investing. So I'm bringing her here tonight. And, you know, I was so kind of impressed with that. And when I got home after the meeting, and it was a great meeting, and on the weekend, I usually kind of take down notes and think about how we can make the meetings better and what new sort of people that we can bring out. And I kept going back to this lady and her daughter, and I was so impressed. And I thought, you know, we need more women like this lady that is bringing her daughter to show these young folks, these women that are becoming, let's face it, right? They're becoming engineers and doctors and lawyers, and they're really taking command of their lives. But these youngsters also need to be exposed to the amazing benefits of a very tried and true investment model such as real estate. And so I decided right then and there that my inspiration was we were going to have our next meeting about high-powered women and multifamily, and we were going to bring out three of the really biggest and baddest women that we could find, and we were going to have them sit on a platform, and we're going to have them tell their stories to the audience about what it takes to be great as a woman in multifamily. And to take it a step further, I figured what better person, what more amazing person to have as a moderator for this event than yourself. And so I'm so happy and grateful, Kathy, that you have blessed us with your presence for this this meeting. And I just know it's going to be fantastic having all these amazing women up there and giving us a different perspective in terms of what it's like to be a multifamily slash real estate investor out there, right? Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And as you know, I've focused primarily on single family because it's something I understand and easy to get in and out of. And and I have personally had challenges with multifamily, but I just love to see women involved in any aspect of real estate investing, whether it's multifamily or single family or notes or, you know, tax liens. 
development. I mean, I've, I've met some women who are full on developers, you know, as you may have met before, building in places like Belize. I mean, it's just, it's very exciting. What is shocking still is that at many events where I'm asked to speak, I'm the only woman, sometimes with 20 speakers and me. So we got to change that. And I love that you're changing it. And I love that it's going to be a panel of women. It's wonderful. I love it too. And, you know, I think that more women really should look to take control of their financial future and really look into sort of what investment models are available out there, whether they choose to be in real estate or anything else. So altogether, I think it's going to be great. And it's going to be Thursday, October 25th, and it's going to be in San Mateo. So if anybody uh, on your listening audience would like to join, it's free. Let me sort of take this opportunity to sort of hijack your podcast a little bit. <laughs> and <laughs> because I don't think many of your listeners get enough opportunity to really hear your story. And <laughs> you and I are on a mastermind group and it's really cool to hear your story. And I think that your listening audience would get a kick out of maybe taking it way back. And maybe we could spend a few minutes talking about you if you don't mind. Oh, all right. Let's do that. Let's do that. So why don't we flip the script and sort of hijack your podcast and say, you know, <laughs> Kathy, how did you get your start in real estate? Where, let's take it all the way back to the beginning and give me a little bit of a story and an insight into you getting your break into real estate. All right. Well, I was born and raised in Menlo Park, which is the center and heart of the Silicon Valley. Actually went to Palo Alto a lot and probably ate in the same restaurants that many of the founders of Apple and, uh, you know, where the Silicon Valley was actually founded. So I watched my parents make a lot of money just living in a house. They bought their house in Menlo Park for $90,000. And by the time I grew up in that house, it was worth millions. So that's what I understood about real estate. Unfortunately, uh, sometimes when you made millions, the next year, you wouldn't have it anymore because of the ups and downs in real estate. Most people didn't know how to predict that. So I'd watch my dad make money and lose money and not really feel very much in control of that not understanding why. So that was my first impression of real estate is that you just live in a house and make millions. That's <laughs> like, oh, isn't this normal? Right. But then my dad invested, he was a dentist, and dentists are notoriously, hmm, how do I say this nicely? Not necessarily great investors because they don't get that training. They're busy, they're trusting, and they hand their money over to people who maybe aren't deserving of it. My dad did that so many times. He would invest in different deals that, that never really went anywhere. And one of them was in an apartment in Marin. It was not a good part of Marin. It's like you said, he, um, he was probably looking at the numbers and didn't know how to do the due diligence because he was a busy dentist. But it ended up being a not a good part of town. Over time, the operators eventually just sold the building, but didn't even tell the partners. So all my dad got was a letter in the mail basically saying, we've sold the apartment and, you know, here's your money. What he had done over the years is depreciate it and write it off. And all of a sudden, he had the recapture. He was just about to retire and was just about to uh, sell his practice. And suddenly he was going to owe about three or $400,000 to the IRS, which he was not expecting. And this would have meant that he couldn't retire. So he was just panicked. And he had maybe two weeks to identify another property. And I thought, well, you know, dad, just what do you need? I had just gotten married. I'm like, what, what do you need? You just need to find another property? Like, and someone to rent it? You know, I mean, Rich and I are renting. We'll just rent from you. And, he, <laughs> you know, he said, uh, okay. So we found a big house, a 4,000 square foot house in Lafayette, just 20 minutes outside of San Francisco. 
And it was just what he needed. It was $546,000 for this uh, five-bedroom house. And we turned it into a fourplex. We lived in the nicest part and we made an apartment out of the in-law unit and we made an apartment out of the office and then this kind of back area. And we we made a fourplex. And I think at that time, the only way we knew how to find renters was through Craigslist. <laughs> we let them, you know, there was no Airbnb, but... So wait a minute, you're <laughs> telling me the single family queen, her first real estate deal was a multifamily fourplex? Yeah. Well, this is big news. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And uh, and we we basically barely paid to live there because we rented all these units out. And that was really how we got our start in understanding that, wow, you can really have other people pay your mortgage for you and you get the asset in the end. What a fantastically brilliant approach that I think more young people, I mean, really, I mean, we have to really talk about this. I mean, can you talk about young people and some creative ways that they can actually go and actually figure out how to buy a home in in these areas like San Jose, where youngsters can think, look, it's never going to happen. I mean, what? What a great idea. I mean, maybe, maybe you can give a little bit of advice to the young folks about how they get into real estate. Sure. I mean, FHA loans only require you to put 3% down. And there's just regular financing that will allow that too. And if you get into multi-units, maybe two or four units, then your FHA loan is pretty high. I know somebody, a, a young man who bought a fourplex in Waterfront in San Diego, and he only had to put, I don't know, it was a million dollar complex. I'm sure it's gone up a lot since then. Uh, he bought it probably eight years ago, but 3% down of a million dollars, you know, it was not that much. And he rented out all the other rooms and was able to live there free and clear. And I'm, I'm sure that building has doubled in value. So that's just one way that he did it. Now that was a better time when values were down, values are high today, but there are ways you can do it, especially with Airbnb. If you can count that rental income, and I believe some loans will allow you to do that. You could partner with other people. You can borrow from your parents and secure their money to the property and pay them a nice return of maybe five or six percent, maybe better than they're getting somewhere else. There's lots of ways to do it. Most important thing is to just get started. My daughter bought a house. I was trying to get her to buy a 